What fills you with joy? Perhaps it's a, a lovely summer's day. Uh, perhaps it's seeing your children or, or grandchildren. Perhaps it's having a day away from your children or grandchildren. Perhaps that's what uh, fills you with joy. Perhaps it's when your uh, favourite football team wins or your favourite rugby team or ping pong team or whatever you're into. Perhaps that fills you with joy. Whatever it is, what fills you with joy? Well, the old Apostle John, uh, who's writing this letter that we're looking at this morning uh, and we'll be looking at for the next few weeks, sets it out plain in the first four verses. This is what he says in verse four. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. He is going for full joy. He's going for complete joy. How? Well, he's writing this letter, that's how. That's what he's doing. He's writing a letter to a group of churches who live nearby. But it's not just that John really likes writing letters. That's not the thing that uh, we're supposed to take from that. The letter is supposed to do something. Something that will bring him joy. What is it supposed to do? Well, we're going to see that as we look through this letter over the coming weeks. John really is like a, a spiral staircase of a letter. It sort of keeps coming back to the same things. And these things that he's going to return to again and again are the things which bring him joy. So we're going to deal with the verses this morning uh, a bit in a topsy-turvy way because it is a bit of a spiral staircase, this John. So we're going to look at this backwards this morning. So we're going to go from four to, to one. So firstly, we're going to see, our first point, is that joy comes from fellowship. So let me read to you again verses three and four. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. John wants his readers to have fellowship with him. That's one of the things he wants this letter to do. He wants his readers to be partners with him. That's really what that word means. Because by the end of the first century, when John was writing this letter, there was already a big split, a big division in the church. In fact, there were various splits and divisions by this point even. There were people who were pretending to be apostles, pretending to be true teachers going around and disturbing the faith of some of the second generation of believers. And you can read about them in 1 John, and in 2 John, and in 3 John. That's the theme of the three letters, really. They unsettled Christians with claims to secret knowledge of some sort of secret things that have been passed on by Jesus and by the apostles, but not everybody knew. And by this time, all the apostles had died. There was no one left to stand up and say that this was nonsense, bar one, John. And that is what John is doing. John is standing up for the true faith. He's telling people what is the truth that has been proclaimed, that has been shown to the world. And he's doing it from his base in Ephesus and spreading it all across the area. So he stood up against these false apostles and he helped and discipled true believers all across Asia Minor. And John wants us to be partners with him as he does that. He wants us to join in with that mission. One of the things these uh, unsettlers often did 
Uh, so we understand was to name drop. That was one of their, their favourite things. They bragged about their connections, who they were in fellowship with, who they had kept company with. You know what I mean? They would probably say, you know, well, I once met Peter. So I'm definitely, you know, a definitely true, true apostle. I was good friends with James. I served on a mission with Andrew. They'd sort of drop these into conversations. I don't know if you've ever seen The Voice uh, on TV. I think it's on ITV now. It used to be on BBC. There's Tom Jones. He's one of the judges. He certainly used to be when I watched it. He was one of the judges. And he would sort of keep name-dropping. You know, oh, that's, that's really good that you've, you know, been, been to Glastonbury or something. When I was singing with Elvis, you know, I just sort of, when I was duetting with the, with the Beatles or Aretha Franklin, you know, he just sort of drops these names in. Interestingly here, John doesn't do that. John, John doesn't tell you what apostle he's connected to, which he once shared a bagel with or something. Why? Because John is an apostle. As he writes this, he doesn't need to lay down his credentials of who he once met somewhere. Actually, he is an apostle. He knew them personally. He knew Jesus personally. He even talks about himself as we. Like, it's the apostolic we, if you like. So he's saying, me and the apostles, as he speaks. But he does do a little bit of name dropping, doesn't he? Uh, in verse uh, 3. Oh, and indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his son, Jesus Christ. That's name dropping, isn't it? It's as if he goes, and by the way, you know, you, you see, you might have once had something with Thaddeus somewhere, right? Okay. Well, my fellowship is with the Father and the Son. And his joy, then, is to be connected to God. That's what he's saying. To be in fellowship with him, in fellowship with the Father and the Son. That's what brings him joy. And that through his message, others might continue in fellowship with him and with God. To be connected to him and to other believers. And that kind of connection with other believers can bring us joy. Especially in a difficult world, can't it? To know that we're not alone. To know that we don't carry all the weight of the mission on our own. To find gospel soulmates, partners, fellow worshippers of Jesus. It's what I sometimes call the Belinda Carlisle principle. We dream the same dream. We want the same thing. That's what fellowship is, isn't it? To be with others who are on the same page. And for John, that must be such a relief. That there are those that are out there who are carrying on the mission. That are going to carry it on when he is gone. That he can run his race with and then leave to take the baton on to another generation. So John sends out this letter to find that connection and build that connection with those who had heeded the call of his first message. See, one of the other interesting things about 1 John really is that it's a sequel. Really, it should be 2 John. Um, because the first one he wrote was just called John. But it gets very confusing, doesn't it, if you start renaming them. But this is why he says he wrote his first message, John. He says in John 20, verse 31, you'll find it on the back of your notice sheets. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So that's why he wrote John. And then this is why he tells you he wrote 1 John, in 1 John 5, 13. I write these things to you who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life. John was there to help them believe, and one John is to help them know that what they believe is really true. 
that the other guys who are teaching the secret knowledge are teaching what is false. So he wants them to stay in fellowship with him. Not just because he likes having lots of friends or anything like that, but because to stay in fellowship with him is to stay in fellowship with God. And to fall out of fellowship with him and what he's teaching is to fall out of fellowship with God too. The church is often pictured like a body in the Bible, all the parts connected together. But if Jesus is the head, then the apostles and their message, they're the neck, if you like, which connect us to the head. You can't chop off the neck and still expect to have a relationship with the head, can you? A connection. So it's important, not just for his readers that he's writing to in the first place, but to us too. We need to know whether we have that connection with the apostles and therefore with Jesus. Not in some sort of uh, game of tag that they call apostolic succession, you know, sort of being connected to someone who was connected to someone who was connected to someone, but connected to them in fellowship, in partnership, that we believe the same things, that we're on the same mission, that we share the same message. So how can we share that fellowship with them? Well, that's our second point. Fellowship comes from proclamation of the gospel. Have a read with me again at verse 3. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you may have fellowship with us. Now this is a point that's often missed out, isn't it? There's much talk these days of community and fellowship and togetherness and unity. But we mustn't forget that fellowship is formed by the proclamation of the gospel. John proclaims these things so that they might have fellowship with him. So we don't create fellowship. We don't construct community. The proclamation of the gospel does that. This is something I need to keep reminding myself over and over again. It's the proclaimed word that forms community. And as much as being together and having fun together is wonderful, we cannot form community artificially. Church is not a religious social club with social events to fill your calendar. That is not what binds us together. The proclamation of the gospel is what binds us together. You see, when we proclaim the gospel, it acts a bit like a magnet. It attracts those with whom we can share fellowship, and it repels those with whom we cannot. More of this in the rest of 1 John. And that means that we mustn't be scared to speak of Christ and to speak of the gospel in church settings. I've known some churches that are sort of maintained in unity by silence. You know, there are things that we just don't talk about, and that keeps us together. And as long as no one rocks the boat, then actually it's all okay. But really, that's a disunity papered over with, with silence. Now, there is a sensible discretion about secondary issues. We don't spend all our time banging on about our views on politics or obscure end time stuff and things like that. But if proclaiming what John is proclaiming is going to divide us, then that's a good thing, actually. Because he's proclaiming it so that we can have fellowship with him. He's proclaiming the truth so that if we agree, it's showing actually that we're on the same side as John. And if the people who are reading the letter can't agree with John and the apostles, if they won't listen to their message, 
that actually it means they can't have any fellowship with the apostles. They have no fellowship with John. And therefore, no fellowship with God, says John, because his fellowship is with the Father. No fellowship with the apostles, no fellowship with God. And the fellowship that it looked like we had together was false. And I think that's why fellowship in the Bible is more than friendship. We can be friends with people that we're not in fellowship with. Otherwise, Christians would have no unbelieving friends, would they? And that wouldn't be right. And we can be in fellowship with people that we're not friends with. So I'm not friends with the Apostle John. I've never met him. I've never took him out for a coffee or anything like that. But I can still be in fellowship with him. Fellowship has to do with being partners in a venture together. John would have known this word. Most of the fishing companies that were on Lake Galilee worked like this. They would club together to buy a boat and some nets. And they would all be invested in the business. It was all of theirs. They looked after the boat together. They tended the nets together. They went fishing together. They would all do their part. And they would all be working towards the same goal. That was fellowship, partnership, co-ownership of, of, of something together. That's what that word means. Bonds of fellowship would, uh, sorry, bonds of friendship would form, no doubt. But it came from that fellowship that they shared together, that partnership that they had together. And what John is proclaiming here, what John wants here is real fellowship in the gospel. A sharing in it formed by the proclaiming of it. You can be partners with me, says John. You can be part of the mission. You can be partners with me. But if you reject my message, if you reject what I'm saying, then we're not partners. We're not in fellowship. We're not on the same mission. Your mission is different from mine. And I can have no part in it. And this will expose that. It will expose whether we can share in John's mission. You see, the word of God by the spirit of God forms the church of God and holds it together. Unites us to Christ and unites us to each other in fellowship. And John's letter will expose whether we have fellowship with him, whether we're on the same team as him and the apostles, or whether we're on another side altogether. John wants us to know what team we're on. And if needs be, it means then that we can swap teams. That's why he wants us to know. He's not just saying, oh, go away. He wants us to know that we can be in fellowship with him. We can join in with him. But to do that, we need to know for starters if we're on the right team. So in this letter, he's going to bring us four big tests to check whether we're really on the same side as John. Whether the message we believe is the true apostolic message. In other words, whether we're really true believers. And I'm not assuming that everybody here this morning or everybody online watching at home will be a believer. Because actually there are people around, aren't they, who, who might think that they're on the team, but are not. You see, if they were unsettlers then, going round with false gospels in those days, only after a few years after Jesus had died, there are far more people now, aren't there, going around preaching other gospels, teaching other things. You see, we have two opposite problems, don't we, in church? Some people are sure that they're in, that they're really believers, and they're not. 
They do all the churchy things. They talk the talk. They may have even been baptised. But they won't pass John's four tests. As John proclaims these things, actually they'll find they're not in fellowship with John. And some people are unsure that they're in, but they really are believers. That's the other people he's writing to. They find it hard to be sure that they're really part of God's people. Well, John's four tests are going to help. They're going to give something objective to cling to for those people who struggle with assurance. They can be assured. They can know that fellowship with John. And therefore, fellowship with the Father and the Son, with, with God himself. As John proclaims these things, they will be bound together with John and with other believers in fellowship. The fellowship of the gospel. So the fellowship of the gospel comes from the proclamation of the gospel. As we proclaim it, it gathers us together. But what is the gospel that he's proclaiming? Well, that's our final point, and it's also the first of our four tests. Proclamation of the gospel comes from the manifestation of the gospel. Have a look at verses 1 and 2. That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testify to it and proclaim to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. Now I know that title might seem sort of grandiose and sound a bit long, but what it means really is this. John can preach the gospel because he's seen the gospel. He's heard the gospel. He's touched the gospel. He has a gospel to preach because something has taken place in real history and he was there to see it and hear it and feel it. How can you see the gospel? How can you touch the gospel? Well, he talks about it here as the word of life, as eternal life. Eternal life has become flesh and John has seen it. I am the life, says Jesus in John 14. He is the word, wrote John in John 1. The word of life has become flesh and dwelt amongst us. Jesus is the good news. He is the gospel. He's the gospel made flesh. Now that sounds strange to my ears. It probably sounds strange to your ears too. But John likes in his letters to put things in strange ways to make us think. He's going to go back to these themes again in his spiral staircase. But it's to make us think differently and make us think hard about what he's saying. What he's saying here is that Jesus is the gospel. There is no gospel apart from Jesus. There is no life apart from Jesus. There is no eternal life apart from Jesus. They're bound together. And that should make us stop and think, shouldn't it? Listen to this. Here's a presentation of the gospel. You're a sinner under God's judgment, but God loves you. Put your trust in God alone and you can be forgiven. Repent and you can know peace with God and enjoy eternal life with him. Now, as a presentation of the gospel, it ticks a lot of boxes, doesn't it? Sin, judgment, faith, repentance. But did you notice what was missing in that gospel presentation? Jesus. Jesus was missing. How can you have a gospel without Jesus? 
Yeah, there it was as I was explaining it. I reckon I've explained the gospel like that before. But what we end up with that is people who want forgiveness, people who want to avoid judgment, who want eternal life in heaven, all good, but don't necessarily want Jesus. Jesus just becomes a means to an end. I want forgiveness, so I'll have Jesus. I want peace, so I'll have Jesus. I want life, so I'll have Jesus. But Jesus is the word of life. Jesus is the prize, not the process. He is the life that's on offer. He is the good news that we're to hold out. The life made flesh. The good news seen bodily. So think about the Apostle Paul. Does he preach Christ or does he preach the gospel? Both phrases are used, aren't they, in the New Testament letters and Acts. Do you think he uh, he preaches, when he preaches Christ, he's preaching something different from when he preaches the gospel? They're the same thing, aren't they? Christ is the gospel. There's no gospel apart from the real physical Christ who lived and died and rose again in real history. And that makes our faith very different from most other world religions, doesn't it? For two reasons. One, Jesus isn't just the messenger, he's the message. In Islam, Muhammad is the messenger of God. Uh, Same with Judaism, with Moses. But in Christianity, Jesus is not just the messenger, he is the message. God could have used other messengers, couldn't he? He does in the Bible all sorts of other messengers. But no one else is the message, is the word of life. You couldn't describe those other people like that. And that means it's not just Jesus' teaching that matters, but Jesus himself in the flesh. So that's the first thing that makes uh, us different. But secondly... It matters then that Jesus really came in the flesh. Christianity has no meaning whatsoever without Christ. You see, Islam could still be Islam without Muhammad if God sent his neighbour to to bring the message instead of him. The same is true in Hinduism. It wouldn't matter in Buddhism if the Buddha wasn't real because it's the set of teaching that's attributed to him that Buddhists follow. It could have been someone else and it, it wouldn't really matter. But you can't have Christianity without a real physical man called Jesus who lived, died and rose again 2,000 years ago. And that makes it different, doesn't it? The truth of Christianity doesn't depend on how good the teaching is, though it's universally agreed that Jesus was an amazing teacher, but it depends on whether Jesus was a real, breathing, physical, real human being. And that is what John is proclaiming to us, that he was there, that he touched him, that he saw him, that he heard him. And if we can't agree with that, then we're not on the same team as John. We're not in fellowship with the apostles. In short, if we can't agree that Jesus was real, historical, then we're not Christians. It puts us outside of that group that John is talking about, outside of fellowship with him. Why? Because John says that he was there, that he saw him, that he physically touched him, that he heard him. I mean, John lived alongside him for three years. He would know whether he was real, wouldn't he? So those people who are trying to say that it's all about morals or all about mysticism are wrong. It's about a man, Jesus. 
And not just a man, obviously. He's from the beginning, he tells us. He's the eternal word of life. But he is a man who stepped into history nonetheless. And that gives us our first test as to whether we're in fellowship with John, whether we really can be assured of our faith, the historical test. When you talk about Christianity, do you believe it's based on facts or just feelings? Is it real history? If your answer is no, then John says we can have no fellowship. But because it is based in real history, that can give us assurance. If we're that group that struggle with our faith and assurance because if your faith is a set of morals to live by then how can you know whether it's true what would that even mean but with this we can know and that should give us assurance John wants to give assurance to that second generation and to us not that Jesus probably came not that John had heard that Jesus had come but that John was there that he saw him he saw here is from the beginning in time in real history and that should give us assurance shouldn't it we're not dealing with so and so told what's the name that he'd heard so and so had met with Jesus no in this letter we had somebody who knew Jesus who was there we have someone who met Jesus after he rose from the dead he's talking about the real historical Jesus who died for our sins and rose for our forgiveness. And that means that our faith has a real grounding, doesn't it? In the person of Jesus, the manifestation of the gospel. It means that we can be sure, doesn't it? So if we put our three points together this morning, what do we see? Well, true joy comes from fellowship. Fellowship comes from the proclamation of the gospel. And the proclamation of the gospel comes from the gospel being made manifest. And it was made manifest in the person of Jesus Christ. And all that means when you put it together is that our joy is ultimately based on the appearing of Jesus Christ. If that didn't happen, then there's no gospel to proclaim. No gospel proclamation, no fellowship, no fellowship, no joy. Joy ultimately comes from Jesus physically appearing in our world. But that means that our joy has a solid grounding. It means our assurance has a solid grounding. It depends on whether that is factually accurate. But it is, isn't it? Which is is what John is saying. He was there, he touched him. But that means then we can know assurance. We can know joy and fellowship with others as we share in those facts. Assurance, then, is not so much based on how you feel, but did this happen? Is it true? Is it real? And our joy is found in the person of Jesus Christ, not in the gifts that he bestows. Listening to him, hearing his word. He himself said in John, uh, John's Gospel, John fifteen eleven, These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. And now we find joy that comes from the words that John wrote as they bring us into fellowship with God and with John and with one another. Real gospel fellowship with each other. Does gospel fellowship then fill you with joy? As you meet others that share the same love of Jesus, the word of life, who believe and proclaim the same gospel that you do, who love him 
as you do and know him as you do. Only works if he's actually real though, doesn't it? Only works if he actually appeared, was manifest so that we might know him, that we might see him. Otherwise we're a fellowship of fools, aren't we? With no hope of joy. So don't let your scepticism steal your joy. But let your joy be full as we enjoy fellowship with John, fellowship with one another, and ultimately fellowship with God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, who brings us into fellowship with the other two. Let's pray. Father God, thank you that we're not a fellowship of fools. Father, thank you that Jesus really did come. He really did uh, live and die and rise again. Father, when we're tempted to doubt whether we're really uh, our believers, Father, help us to cling to those truths. Father, thank you for John who had the foresight to write down that he was there and to show us we can have fellowship with you. Help us to enjoy that fellowship this week, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.